Good morning, brothers and sisters. We are sad that we're not able to physically be here together this morning as we approach the Lord in worship today. Circumstances being what they are with the rising risk and impact of the coronavirus on our population, we're doing what we feel to be most wise and most loving. In no way do we want to neglect the command of Scripture recorded in Hebrews 10, 24-25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But inherent in that command to love one another is the responsibility to look out for one another's needs and well-being. The coronavirus epidemic has the potential to do great harm to our communities, and we want to take the health and well-being of our people into consideration as we think about ways that we might be cooperative in stemming the tide of the outbreak of this disease. So our hope and prayer is that we'll be able to congregate together very soon, hopefully starting in April. But in the meantime, we hope that each Sunday's video sermon will give you the opportunity to seek the Lord with your family at home so that the Lord will be on your minds and your hearts as you think about the events of our day through the lens of His sovereignty and care. As a reminder, we will have made available to you the following resources linked in the description below. You will have the bulletin available for you. We want to encourage you to open that up and look at it so you'll be familiar with what's going on. I won't go through announcements today. We're going to spare you that, but please look in the bulletin so you know what changes we're having to make as we accommodate this new way of, of worshiping the Lord for the next few weeks. You're also still able to worship the Lord God through giving, which is an important part of how we honor Him and praise Him for what He's doing in our lives. You can do that by sending a physical check to 3195 Contra Loma Boulevard in Antioch, 94509. Or you can do that uh, by our website's online giving tool, uh, which is on firstfamily.us. We also have the sermon note sheet available for you. So you can download that and print it out. That might be a helpful tool as you go through the sermon today as a family, uh, we may or may not be quizzing you as elders when you get back to make sure you didn't play hooky the whole time we were gone. So when all is said and done, Christians are a people who have been sanctified and set apart to worship the one true God. We have come to know His wonder as He has made us see that He is the author of all life, that He is holy and just, He is merciful and true. God has justly revealed our sins to us, and He has made known that only He holds the key to our redemption and to the forgiveness of our sins. That key is His Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, lived without sin, and laid down His life for us. Jesus voluntarily died a sinner's death, and then He took His life up again as He rose on the third day, according to the Scripture. His triumph atoned for the sins of His chosen people, not only so that they might be set free from their sin, but also so they might be free to worship Him forever as adopted sons and daughters. And one of the many ways we respond worshipfully to God is by opening our Word, His Scripture, and putting our eyes and attention on the things that He has revealed to us. So open right now, if you have it, to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10 begins a, a series of wisdom proverbs that Solomon has recorded for us here, drawing near to the end of the book. What are proverbs? Proverbs are short, memorable sayings that draw distinctions between what is foolish 
and what is wise. Their impact is very accessible. With only a few words, they can convey a truth that is both profound and is useful in the context of everyday life. They are easily memorized, and therefore they are very easily passed on from one person to another. They usually act as a gateway to even larger, deeper truths, but they have immediate value in and of themselves. Even a person who does not trust in God might benefit from the following uh, from following the reason that is inherent in these proverbs, but will not know the full value of these truths unless they come to an authentic faith in the God who declares them. We must be careful not to confuse a proverb for something that it is not. Proverbs are not law. They, are direct, they direct a person to practices that are most likely to produce outcomes that are pleasing to God, but they are not covenant promises or guarantees. If we approach proverbial statements the way that we approach law or promises, then we may find ourselves disappointed when we discover that life is often unconventional. It does not always bear proverbial fruit the way that we expect it to. So, for example, Proverbs 10.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors there is safety. What truth is that proverb trying to communicate to us? It's telling us that we should keep our ears open and be willing to listen to different perspectives and different understandings of truth. But it does not say that as long as you have more than 10 people telling you what they think is wise, that you're going to land on the truth. In fact, sometimes too many counselors creates confusion rather than mitigating confusion. A variety of perspectives do not always give you the truth but we should keep our eyes open to the fact that we need to look to others for wisdom and guidance and not just to our own opinions. Proverbs are practically beneficial and help to dissuade people from falling into foolish ways, but Proverbs are not only practically valuable, they are theologically valuable as well. Since God is infinitely wise in His character, avoiding folly can help us in our pursuit of God Himself. Proverbs that are declared by God can shed some theological light on what is good according to His perfect judgment. The format of proverbial wisdom does not easily lend itself to standard verse-by-verse preaching that we normally do here at First Family Church. Each proverb is a self-contained unit of truth, and one does not necessarily build off of another. The proverbs that make up this particular chapter at times feel like portions of a greater theme, but other times they may stand completely on their own. Preaching a whole sermon on one proverb can have great benefit, but often you'll find yourself addressing the same issue just a couple of verses down the text as the same truth is stated in a slightly different way. So therefore, it is good practice, I find, to approach this form of wisdom strategically. How we will approach chapter 10 is we will divide it into four threads of thought that are woven together throughout this chapter. First section of thought will be general thoughts on wisdom and folly. Secondly, we'll see the idea of speech and wisdom concerning speech as it flows through the chapter. Then we will look at wisdom concerning labor in our efforts in life. And then finally, we will look at wisdom regarding the rulers that God has allowed to have authority over us. So we're going to group the verses that fit into each of these four categories and preach them one at a time over the next four weeks. As this is the first week in a series of four, 
We're going to focus today on the general concepts of wisdom and folly. So please follow along in your Bibles as we read chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Solomon writes, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Let's take a second and pray. Thank the Lord for these verses which will guide us today as we grow in wisdom and understanding. <coughs> Almighty God, it is a little strange not to preach to a big group of gathered believers, Lord, but it isn't that strange because I know that your word applies directly to me and that it is truth that I need to preach to myself even before I can with good conscience come before my congregation. And so I ask, Lord, that as we are, are thinking about these things and as the word is exposited this morning, that you would give us eyes that are wide opened by the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a humility that is wi willing to receive counsel, not just from a variety of counsels, but from the most important one, from you yourself. So enlighten us, Holy Spirit. Help us to be strong in what we understand and give us the courage to apply these things to our lives as we obey you as disciples and as followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Let us draw closer to this text as we magnify the first of the three verses. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We find Solomon beginning chapter 10 with visual imagery that stirs up a repulsion in us that is so vivid that it can effectively imprint truth of the Proverbs' meaning upon our hearts and minds in a lasting way. In the culture of the early church, the hot, arid climate left people often smelling pretty bad if it was uh, left unchecked. It was common for people to invest in some kind of scented ointment or lotion or oil that was mixed together of fine ingredients and rubbed upon the skin as a way to give a person a nice aroma and mask their natural body odors. Now, this ointment was often assembled from ingredients that were hard to come by, and it could cost the individual quite a bit to purchase it. Since this was a personal item that was designed to come in direct contact with the skin, you can see how someone would want the ingredients of such an ointment to be a pure and trustworthy nature. If a perfumer was careless, however, and allowed the ointments that they were trying to sell to become uncovered, the sweet smell of that ointment might attract more than just paying customers. It could attract an unsavory insect, which you can imagine flying near to get a little taste of whatever smelled good, might get stuck in the sticky, the sticky nature of that ointment. The sight of the dead carcass of an unclean creature floating in a substance you're about to rub upon your skin is a stomach-turning thought and would very likely ruin the value of that whole jar of ointment. Your skin's probably crawling a little right now uh, just thinking about that. We would have no choice but to throw out the entire jar for the sake of that single contamination which has changed the way that we feel about the whole jar of ointment. Verse 1 reveals to us the pervasive potential of folly. Translating the imagery to our theme of wisdom and folly, it is not hard to see that though we might strive for great wisdom, though we might, 
Though we might work hard to be discerning and to make decisions that are in harmony with God's truth, in the flash of a moment, so much of what we have worked very hard to achieve can be defiled if we allow room for even a little foolishness in our lives. Just as you would probably not finish an ice cream cone if your dog walked up and took a lick of it when you weren't paying attention, so too does a little folly have the power to make us think differently about someone who is otherwise trying to operate on wisdom. This ties in with the last verse of chapter 9, which Pastor Paul preached a week ago. Verse 18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That verse highlighted the corporate impact of having one sinner among many wise. Here the verse of chapter 10, first verse of chapter 10, turns our thoughts on matters towards a more personal slant. We see this principle taken seriously by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Galatians. The early church was making remarkable progress in sharing the gospel and planting churches. One such church was in the Roman province of Galatia, a congregation that was planted, on, uh, was planted by Paul and Barnabas on their first mission journey. The Galatians had been rightly taught that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But after Paul and his team had moved on to continue to spread the gospel to new regions, a different set of teachers had ventured up into the province of Galatia, and they began to teach that in addition to believing in Jesus Christ and putting your faith on his atonement, that the Galatian Christians, many of whom were from non-Jewish Gentile heritage, would also need to become circumcised as well. Now, circumcision had been required as a mark of the Mosaic Covenant for centuries, and it was a rite of passage for faithful Jewish males. Why would the Apostle Paul adamantly and passionately put his foot down in insisting that circumcision was in fact not a requirement to believe in Jesus as Savior and to experience His grace. Paul was adamant because he knew how pervasive error can be. When you open yourself to a little bit of heretical thought, then eventually it begins to bleed into all your areas of understanding the Lord God. If the Galatians had made this one concession, it was as if they were putting themselves under the whole of the law again and making the grace of Christ's sacrifice completely worthless. If our forgiveness is based on our own efforts, if we have to earn our favor with God, then it is no longer a free gift from Him. And so Paul passionately warns the believers in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see the pervasive effect that foolishness and error can have. It can go to spoil much in the way of good if we allow it to persist. Grace is the beauty of the gospel. We are unable to achieve redemption for ourselves, and so a loving and forgiving God is willing to pay the full price and suffer in our place. Just a little bit of heresy jeopardizes that whole gospel. And so Paul makes sure that he puts a secure lid on the ointment, that no flies wander in and defile what is holy and good and pure, and make the whole thing repulsive to us. No one wants something that has been corrupted. Once one repulsive thing is even a little part of the greater good, the appeal is gone. The ointment is defiled and disgusting to the beholder. (coughs) 
Who has not experienced this frustrating waste in their own lives? I'm sure there are many out there today who have experienced this. A reputation built on years of good business practice can be put into jeopardy by one compromise made in an effort to save a little bit of money or to avoid a little bit of hardship. One dishonest lie that seems like a relatively small thing at the time is enough to ruin the trust that you have labored so hard to build. A marriage fortified by years of faithful monogamous love can become in an instant a source of pain instead of joy when a spouse foolishly seeks a little affection from someone outside of the marriage covenant. The Word of God itself provides a very poignant example of this principle in action. We need only look to Moses, one of the key prophets of the Old Testament. The story is recorded in Numbers chapter 20. The prophet Moses had come so far in obeying the Lord. He had taken a leap of faith so great that it landed him in front of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time, where he boldly de declared on the, on, in the, in the uh, representation of the Lord that God wanted his Hebrew people released from their slavery there in Egypt, that they might go into the wilderness and worship him properly. Though God had worked in miraculous ways through Moses' life to rescue these people, after a great time of striving and serving God, Moses' wisdom eluded him. We can read the record in Numbers 20, starting in verse 2. The Israelites were in a place called Meribah, where there was no water. The people began to grumble, as was their practice. They saw the lack of water as a death sentence for themselves. Oh, that we would have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, they shouted, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Moses and Aaron responded quickly to their pleas and their cries. They appealed to the Lord. The scripture tells us they fell humbly on their faces, and God responded to their humble approach. His instruction to them was very clear. All Moses and Aaron needed to do was speak to a particular rock, and God declared that he would make that rock bring forth water miraculously in the presence of all those who were doubting. But Moses, for reasons that are not explicitly spelled out in the text, decided instead to take the rod that God had given to him, that special rod that was a symbol of Moses' authority over the people and a reminder that his power came not from himself, but from Yahweh's supernatural favor upon him. He took that rod and he struck the rock twice. Water did come out of the rock, but that moment of foolish disregard for the instructions that God had given to Moses came with repercussions. God chastised Moses, his servant, and Moses was no longer allowed to enter into the promised land when the time was right. He had come so far, but Moses would pass away in the wilderness just days before the people of God would go in to taste the fruit of that wonderful covenant blessing. It is a humbling, humbling reality that so much work can be lost so easily. It should drive us to caution, shouldn't it? Seeing that foolishness can be so defiling, we should have a great desire to seek God's help in becoming set apart from sin and the foolishness that leads to sin. Your elders experienced that this week as we weighed the options of what we should do in light of the growing concerns regarding the coronavirus. It was our sincere hearts to gather, uh, desire to gather together with you today to continue with 
the, the fellowship of the saints instead of canceling service. We wanted to be here for the Lord's day, but we also needed to take into careful consideration the value of being overly cautious regarding a sickness like this. If we would have assembled and even one of our elderly or vulnerable would have gotten the virus, heaven forbid if even one of our number would have died unnecessarily because of our lack of caution, then it would have grieved us tremendously. It only takes a little folly to undo the benefits of much wisdom and discernment. Looked at from another facet, this, pro- this proverb should also give us perspective regarding our own potential and the weakness of man's judgments upon us. Even with the best of judgment, even when every precaution is taken, sometimes a fly is going to find its way in. We don't have the ability to eliminate every variable that could do us harm or spoil our efforts, and we must not proudly assume that we have the power to evade all of life's pitfalls. And so as we seek to apply this wisdom, this proverb that God has given to us through Solomon, we must understand that precaution doesn't solve every problem of life. But in so much as it depends on us, we need to be careful to guard ourselves with diligent, thorough wisdom. Folly may one day come, but in the meantime, give no place to it in your life. Solomon has more to say on the matter, though, as we look at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. Verse 2 reveals to us that folly influences our ways. Now, turning to the right or to the left is not meant to be a political statement, as some of you, some of you are probably smiling and laughing and, and thinking that you can use this in your arguments with people online. We often think Republican-Democrat when we think right-left, but we should not import that modern meaning into the text here. Rather, the state of mind that we allow ourselves to be in will sway the choices that we make and the actions that flow from them. Though modern politics are not in view here, the significance of rights and lefts in God's Word should not be taken lightly. We might remember in Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 or 31 through 34, Jesus is describing the difference between those who believe and those who reject Jesus as Lord. He's saying that he's going to divide them in the final day of judgment like a shepherd might divide sheep from goats. And in that parable that Jesus teaches, the sheep, those who are counted faithful, are expressly described as being on the right hand of the Savior. The goats who stand for those who in stubbornness and pride reject the work of Jesus are clearly described as being on the left hand of Jesus. To be upon the right means to allow oneself to, allow oneself to receive the wisdom and the will of the Lord God. The heart is representative here of the seed of man's affections. Now, it's not just a person's emotional tendencies that are in play when we speak about the heart biblically. The modern take on the heart tends to isolate the idea of man's sentimentality to a person's heart, but that would miss out on much of what is intended in the word here. Here, the heart refers to not just our emotions, but to the core of what a person values, to what they are interested in, to what they believe in. When our core is rotten, the actions that flow out of our heart will be rotten as well. So to give one's heart to a thing involves pursuing it 
not just emotionally, but with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your energies. Solomon's already shown us this pattern four different times in Ecclesiastes. Let me show you a few of them. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13 says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What does he apply? He applies his heart. And he wants to know wisdom. So this is not just an emotional exercise here. The heart involves the, heart, the emotions, but it also involves the thoughts and the reason. Verse 17 of the same chapter, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. There is great perception and calculation going on in his pursuit of these things, even though that is driven by his heart. In chapter 8, verse 9, it says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his herd. And again, he says it in chapter 8, verse 16. We see this pattern where as Solomon is pursuing something with his heart, that doesn't just mean his emotions, but it means his very being, the essence of his character his mind, his heart, his strength. Do you apply your heart to know and to live according to God's wisdom? In our society, we see people chasing after many things with their heart, many things that are unworthy of their attention and focus. But do we as God's people want to have the wisdom of God? If we desire that wisdom that is so useful in keeping us from folly and error, and that means we must be pursuing Him through the Word. That means we must be seeking Him in prayer. That means we must surround ourselves with brothers and sisters to whom we can talk about this glorious God who has saved us and redeemed us and brought us into this sweet fellowship that we experience as His church. A committed heart is better than a calculating mind. There are those who are very, very intelligent, and yet they have no love for the things of God. When you see evidence of an offense it is helpful to follow that back to the source, to follow it back as a trail that will lead you to the source of what is causing the problem. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm currently in my free time trying to work out some issues with uh, a, a Land Rover Discovery, which is a vehicle that's basically been described as every automotive problem you can imagine with four wheels attached to it. And so one of the things that I need to do is I need to isolate why this thing can't pass smog right now. There is a code in the computer that tells me that I need to look at one of the particular systems. I've got to look at the evaporative system. But I can't just look at the whole system. I've got to trace that problem back all the way down the line until I can find some sort of fault, some sort of break in a seal, some sort of place where air can get into the system and mess up the ratios that are causing this engine to run poorly and to cause pollution. And so when we are looking at someone's life and we see error there, we can trace that back to find the source of the error. An error of foolishness will always be traced back to a crookedness in our hearts. We should not be surprised to hear this principle laid out for us. Is it any different than what Jesus says to us when he declares, it's not the thing that goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but it is rather a corruption in the heart that defiles him so that evil proceeds out of the man? We see this in chapter 15 of Matthew, starting in verse 16. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. But it can give you the coronavirus, so wash your hands, please. We are so inclined to sin and folly that it takes a regenerating intervention on the part of the Holy Spirit and a sincere rendering of our thoughts to begin to change the kinds of actions that flow from our being. I pray that hearing this message here this morning, you do not walk away with an urgent compulsion to simply try harder when it comes to wisdom and folly. Our interpretation of texts falls short if we're only concerned about behavior modification. And I would be presenting to you an error similar to the false teachers who threatened Galatia if I came up here and made you think that wisdom was simply a matter of your own human effort. It is not. Friends, wisdom is a matter of trusting the Lord God. As we seek Him humbly and admit the limits of our human wisdom, we come underneath a greater wisdom that is so much more superior than our own and that we can appeal to a king who rules over us in the very ways that we are designed to be ruled by him in truth and in love. This is what corrects the error that begins in the heart. You might have noticed in our study through Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite commentators on this book is a man named Charles Bridges. He writes, This active energy is most important in the, life, uh, in the Christian life when our ever-ready enemy is always on the watch to take us by surprise, and when the habit of instant prayer is our only effectual cover. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful direction for those who want to have a more pure heart, that in those moments when we lack the wisdom that we need, the, the answer to that is not to go to some worldly expert, but is instead in prayer to seek Him in instant prayer, to seek His guidance and wisdom, to remember the word that He has revealed to us that keeps us from being like wandering sheep without a shepherd. Chapter 4 of Proverbs says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And the best way that we manage our heart is to put it into the hands of the God that we trust so well. If this passage is to be of much use to us, friends, we have to be willing to concede the fact that we too are sometimes susceptible to this kind of mixed misdirection of heart. It is way too easy when considering wisdom and folly to think of folly as any option that I disagree with. That's the very self-centered way of thinking, but it is the most common way that people approach wisdom and folly. The grace of God can shake us free from that self-centered mentality and can train us to rejoice and God's shaping influence over us. And so much as He shapes and molds our hearts, God also sets our path and impacts the way that we live out faith in respect to Him. <clears throat> the third verse that we're looking at today says that even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Verse 3 is describing a man whose actions speak louder than his words do. And unfortunately, since his actions are foolish, they declare the actor to be a fool. Foolish actions reveal foolish hearts. Time is not really the ally of one who makes room for folly in their lives. When our hearts are foolish, it is only really a matter of time before that rotten seed begins to blossom 
and eventually produce a fruit that is equally foolish. And it gives away the nature of that tree. Verse 28 of chapter 17 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs is full of wisdom concerning folly. And so here we see that a person will often betray their lack of wisdom by opening their mouths and proving it with their words. But in Ecclesiastes here, in chapter 10, verse 3, we see that it's not only the things that a person says that reveals their foolishness. Sometimes it is simply the things that he does, the actions and the way that he walks through life. When the root is rotten, so shall the fruit be rotten. And it's only a matter of time before that plays out in the ways that someone becomes, uh, in ways that become apparent to other people. The fact that a fool can be spotted by his actions means that we should be alert and take precautions when we see evidence that a person's concealing a foolish heart in their chest. Because Proverbs chapter 17, 12 says, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. When you come across the path of one who has a heart full of foolishness, it not only does destruction to the foolish person himself, but to those who are around them. Even more so should we keep an eye on our own actions and pay attention to what spiritual deficiencies of sanctification might be within us when we see bad conduct coming out in our own lives. I'd like to conclude by thinking about this in the context of our current social situation. When strife and danger bears down on us as a people, the foolishness that was simmering below the surface, percolating in hearts that are not surrendered to the Lord, will have cause to rise to the surface in ways that people respond to the difficult circumstances that they encounter. And there is no shortage of trial in our society today, is there? As I was calling people last night to inform them about the changes that we had to make to our services, how we were not gathering together today, uh, I heard a loud crash. It was also raining yesterday, and uh, Californians, it takes them about three weeks before they forget how to drive in the rain. We haven't, had, we haven't had rain or wet weather for months and months, and so I knew instantly what had happened. I ran to my back fence and looked over. I could see down the, the, um, the, the, the hill there, and there's a pretty busy street near my home, and two cars had collided. One of the cars was a high-powered rear-wheel drive car. They had gotten out of control and applying throttle and spun out and smashed into a smaller white car. And I watched before my eyes as the frustrations of all this uncertainty and all of this chaos with the virus and all these concerns about people getting sick and loved ones getting sick and what are we going to do with our kids now that they're not in school and am I going to be able to get a paycheck? How am I going to pay for my rent if I can't go into work? All of this frustration boiled out to such a degree that the man in the white car got out and instantly went to attack the man that had hit him. He began screaming obscenities at him. He dragged him from his car. The man said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. And it took three or four neighbors pulling that bigger man off of him to keep it from becoming a bloodbath. It was a scary situation for a moment. We are not in control of life. The human heart is desperate to be Lord of his own life. But any sense of control we may fabricate for ourselves is only a veil that hides the fact that only one is sovereign. And he's not in Washington, D.C. And he's not in Atlanta at the Center for Disease Control. He is seated on a throne. 
He is ruling on high from heavenly places through all this difficulty. And it is to Him that we need to turn in times like these. These kinds of trials can reveal deficiencies in us that we must surrender to the Lord and ask that He help us sanctify. Friends, don't be tempted to selfishly hoard every resource that you can for yourself in times like this. I was blessed yesterday when a brother called me up and said, Pastor, I know it's kind of crazy out there. Do you need any toilet paper or water? I happen to have a whole bunch at my house, and I know it's hard to come by right now. And I was just so blessed to see that somebody was thinking about the body of Christ and trying to find ways to look at others and see what they needed instead of just thinking, I might need this in two or three weeks. I don't know how supply and demand is going to change in the weeks to come. If we have that impulse, if that natural desire there to keep for yourself rises up in you through this tough time, come humbly before the Lord and ask that God will remind you that you're called to be generous as He was generous to you. That you're called to look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of those around you, first for the church that He has made you a part of, but then also for your community, for the people around you. Perhaps you don't have to worry right now about your kids being in school because you homeschool or because you have one of the spouses staying at home to take care of kids. Maybe this is the time for you to go and and walk across the street to your neighbor and say, I I know it must be pretty hard. Do you need somebody to watch your kid for the next week while you're at work? I don't want you to have to quit your job so you can take care of your little one. They can come and stay with us. They can come and spend the days with us. There, There are ways that we as the church can be incredibly loving in these times not because we are incredibly loving by nature, but because the Lord God who saved us is an incredibly loving God. And we want to be like Him. So don't curse the powers that be when decisions are made that, you, that hamper your life and they create chaos and problems for you that you must, must now overcome. It makes no sense for us to wave our fist at Washington, D.C. I'm seeing the difficulty that leaders are having and having to make split-second decisions again and again in times like these. Let's have grace for those who who don't have a playbook for this situation. Let's give them time. Let's be patient with one another. Don't fall apart in despair, forgetting that you are infinitely cared for in love. Don't let anxiety grip you in such a way that you cannot experience God's joy in the here and the now. If you are saved, friend, you have everything that you need. And I don't mean to minimize this virus by talking in these ways But a virus cannot take away what Christ has given to you if you are in Him. The joy that you can have in His security, the power that you can have knowing that even if you were to get a virus that took your life prematurely, that it would only be an upgrade for you if you have Christ. That you would be saying goodbye to a body that is susceptible to these kind of things. That you'd be embracing a body that now is perfect and unvulnerable in any way to this kind of corruption. And so friends... Let us take the precautions necessary, but let us not be crazy. Let us not be anxious. Let us not allow fear and worry to rule our hearts and minds. And don't, friends, put your trust where it doesn't belong. I am very grateful that we live in a society where there are modern things in place to care for us in times like this. But your Savior is not in the Pentagon. Your Savior is is not in some social movement. It's not in your government. Your Savior was your Savior before this began, and He'll be your Savior after. Turn your hearts and your eyes to Jesus Christ and worship Him. 
I'm so sad that the circumstances of this event is keeping us away from churches because this is where people need to be flocking to in times of hardship and trial. We must learn to filter through these influences of life. Our hearts have got to be rooted in Christ Jesus and trusting in the sovereignty of our great God. And if they are not, we make room for the wrong kinds of wisdom in our heart. And those seeds only bear one thing. They bear foolish actions. If you are watching this today and you don't want to be revealed as a fool one day, you don't want all your actions to prove that you don't have a faith in the one true sovereign God, that I would encourage you to seek Christ right now. That in the word of God, there is the gospel message plainly presented to us that there is a savior sent from God who is the only one able to keep the law that all of us break. He was the only one who was able to come and live perfectly and, and to, de, to demand no punishment from the Father with his actions. That man was Jesus Christ. And as he walked this earth, he did so not just to be an example to us, but to be a propitiating sacrifice for us, that he might take the wrath of God off of us, a wrath that we rightfully earned, and put it upon his own shoulders. Friend, this is what you need. Anything else is foolishness. If we think we have the power to control God and to set our destiny apart from Him, we will be sorely disappointed. But when Christ is our King, and when we worship Him as we were designed to do so, then we can have the kind of joy and contentment that is impervious to any kind of trial. The Lord God will be our strength and our sanctuary. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father God, we are so very grateful for the health that we can have of heart even when the body and the flesh fail. Lord God, I, I'm so very, very grateful for the testimony of truth that you have given to us and that you have given us as a stewardship to give to the world. And I do pray, Lord God, that in these trying times that you might shine brighter than anything else, that people will encourage one another and will love one another because of the love they have seen from you that we as your people would represent you in such a way that others who do not yet know you will seek you, Lord God. May your Holy Spirit be working in concert with these situations, that you might be turning lives towards you, that you might be making an eternal transformation in those who were formerly lost, who were formerly enemies of your kingdom, that they might now become a part of your family forever. We love you, God. Please bring healing upon our land. Please be merciful to us, though we do not deserve it, and stem the tide of this pandemic. We are so very grateful for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We do ask, Lord, that you would be caring for those in places where it is far more difficult than here in America. We ask for those who are in China, where a great revival of Christianity is going on right now. We pray that this would only fuel the flames of those who love you, God, and that the, the grace of your people will shine in these times far beyond the oppressive government that is over them. We pray, Lord God, that the economy would not experience great disaster from the changes that are having to be put into effect to protect the citizens from this disease. Lord God, we put all these things in your hand and we trust you because you are good. Help us to sing songs of praise and worship to you as we remember that nothing is beyond your grasp. We pray this in admiration of your great wisdom in confession of our folly that only you can fix. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.